My name is Dylan C, and welcome to the 19th episode of the Night Reader Podcast. Thank you so much for being here and stopping by the keep. I've prepared a wonderful episode for us today. It's been such an amazing journey so far. You all know this book excites me like no other. It's a wonderful adventure of poetic ocean life, revenge, finding yourself, tragedy, comedy, love, loss, destiny, manifestation good and evil, and so much more. I'm a huge fan of tragic stories and human struggle. It's truly one of the deepest and most rewarding stories I have ever read. And we are given so much insight into human nature and emotion through this incredible poetic language. I hope you can enjoy this wonderful, wonderful story. And my deepest hope with all of this is to inspire many, all ages, to get past their apprehensions of art. My heart is welded to this project and a few others. I will never let go of them. I'd like to thank, firstly, all of my supporters, listeners, and followers. If you enjoy my show, please reach out to me. I love speaking with fans, and uh, I always miss and forget some thank yous, but I must thank Christine Doran, uh, children's book author. Search her on Amazon, she's really great. Thank you, Aisha, from the book and art Instagram world. Follow her Instagram for awesome book content and beautiful art. It's art by Ayesha ZHD. A-R-T-B-Y-A-Y-E-S-H-A-Z-H-D. Please search her up, follow her, let her know know Night Reader sent you. Thank you to Jack Vincent, who has an awesome literary podcast called Story Warriors. I'll be collaborating with him sometime soon, so make sure to go check out his show on all platforms. He's a really, really cool guy. And, uh, yeah. Now... Um, I'd like to share something small with you guys. Uh, Herman Melville. Obviously, if you've heard my prior episodes, you know my feelings towards him and his works, right? Um, Well, Herman Melville once lived in a home uh, in Massachusetts called, uh, referred to as Arrowhead. Um, That's where he spent a lot of his time, and I believe it's where he wrote Moby Dick. And he uh, spent a lot of time just like, you know, cooping himself in there and writing. so you can see pictures of it. You can visit it. It is now a museum. It's called Arrowhead. And um, yeah, it's like a historical house museum type thing. You can just go there and still see his desk where he wrote Moby Dick and a bunch of other cool things. I've never been there myself, obviously, but I'd, I'd love to visit there one day um, as well as, as his grave. It would be very important to me. I had plans to do it this year, but obviously plans have changed for all of us. So anyways, Arrowhead uh, at Berkshire. It's really, really cool. And um, the community there, the historical community, the people who work at the museum are starting this really, really cool thing um, due to the shelter in place and everything like that. And they're encouraging us to read Moby Dick. If you've never read Moby Dick before, now's a perfect chance, right? You're home. You have the time to do it. You have the means to do it. And uh, you don't even need a physical book. You can follow along with me if you don't feel like reading. Or you can read it yourself and, you know, follow along with me or do whatever makes you feel comfortable with it. But they're challenging everyone to go ahead and read Moby Dick. And uh, if you go to their Instagram, it's arrowhead underscore Berkshire. That's B-E-R-K-S-H-I-R-E. Go there. That's the official museum's Instagram. And that's where they set up the challenge to say, uh, read the first chapter of the first, excuse me, read the first paragraph of the first chapter. Call me Ishmael. 
historical and famous line. They want you to take a video of yourself reading that and send it to them. And they'll post it on their website. And it's a great way to get a big community of people you know, into reading it. So I'm collaborating with them right now, and uh, they're going to be posting some of my uh, voice videos. So please, it would be really cool if you could go over to their Instagram. If you have a copy, open it up, record yourself uh, reading the first paragraph, and uh, do it, and they'll post you. And it would be really cool, and we could all read it together, right? Uh, my next episode after this one is going to be another Your Favorite Reads episodes. Um, they are some of my favorite episodes that I'm very very proud of. Probably one of my best episodes to me, favorite episodes, um, are your, your favorite reads, episodes uh, 15 and uh, with Martha Spurk. Um, it's episodes where I get to share my personal writings of inspiration, uh, poetry, and um, talk with other readers, influencers, and writers from around the world about their favorite books and books that have changed their lives. Okay, so tune in next, uh, next time, and uh, it's going to be another one of those. Until then, Listen to the prior episodes. Uh, leave me a review on uh, iTunes if you like. And uh, see how you like it. And reach out to me. I'm always available uh, on social medias. So when I get to know me a little bit better, say what's up. Uh, I love that. I'm going to dive right in. We've reached chapter 42. And that's kind of mind-blowing to me. We have a long way to go. A decent way to go. But um, the first half of the book is filled with so, so much information, um, so much beautiful poetry, you know, character development, um, funny scenes, interesting scenes, um, poetic you know, writings that puts you right there. It's really cool to have made it this far, but going all the way. And after this, we're going to continue with other classics um, like Three Musketeers and All Quiet on the Western Front. So very exciting. The Night Reader won't ever be going anywhere. It's going to be here. It's a long running show. And um, I've dedicated myself to it. So, chapter 42, The Whiteness of the Whale. This chapter is indeed about the color white and the history of the color white. This can initially seem monotonous and mundane. However, much is gained here for the reader. And what's interesting to me is to hear and read the insights of the modern man and what the color means to him. In many cultural and historical references, as per usual of Melville, we learn some history and how the color white can mean many different things to different people or cultures. Ishmael begins by telling us the whiteness of the whale is quite mysterious to him. Almost the most haunting thing about the whale. He isn't sure why, though. There have been much speculation regarding why Moby Dick is white. Uh, well, why Herman made him that way. We'll keep that in mind as we discuss it in depth eventually. And with that being said, Ishmael goes on to make an attempt at penning for us why the whale being white is significant. He uses many examples and they're all really entertaining. So let's check them out. In many objects, the whiteness of them can generally enhance the beauty of said object. Examples he gives us. Marbles. Pearls. Pretty white flowers. Indeed. Old kings in ancient city called Pegu, near Thailand, held the white elephant in very high regard. The Hanoverian flag that dons a great white running horse in the middle of it, and Roman soldiers that wore bright white garbs. Herman points out the significance in this and how humans react to the color, or lack of it. The color white often represents gladness as a white stone in ancient Roman culture was a mark of a joyful day. 
Indian tribes of early America gifted a white belt that was the highest honor to receive. White can represent nobility and innocentness. Think about the bride's white dress. In some instances and in some cultures, the color has been made to represent divinity and power, such as in ancient Persian religions of fire worship, or in Greek mythology, where Zeus takes the form of a great white bull. Also, we see in paintings and such these examples. Other cultures' stories of sacrificing snow-white animals and other stuff like that. This is all intriguing, striking, and true. I mean, look at the holy images hanging in paintings, in churches, or wherever you see them. Whatever entity you see, aren't they usually draped with a bright white light? In pop culture, isn't being born depicted by a bright white light at the end of a tunnel? Same when someone dies in a show, cartoon, movie, whatever. You're moving towards the light. What other examples of this can you think of? That being said, though, Ishmael says here that with all of its beauty, there's something striking and fearful about it, even more so than a flash of red blood. Something that's unaccounted for. So, think about people saying their life flashes before their eyes, right before they die. When the color white is not part of something holy or beautiful, and you put it into something terrifying, that white color will intensify said horror. Hmm. Let's think of some modern examples. The first thing that comes to mind are aircraft, especially the gigantic airliners and blimps of white, tremendous and frightening to the eye. Can you think of other modern examples? Herman describes the whiteness of bears and frozen climates and tropical great white sharks. I've said many a time that Herman Melville is quite guilty of something in his lifetime of writings. That is sometimes the obsessive need to explain himself. He dedicates pages and entire chapters even, explaining why he has said something or why he feels a certain way. I'd imagine this stems from some sort of insecurities in his writings. This is completely normal. I'm also aware that Herman Melville receives much criticism in his writings so it could be something due to that. It can be off-putting sometimes, though, to the average modern reader. And uh, even Herman Melville's personal letters to his close friends, he sent out letters explaining letters, explaining letters. It's a bit funny, actually. I love the guy. We'll see this often, and I'll point it out. Below this chapter, Herman Melville adds some notes explaining why he mentioned said animals. He says someone could argue about the reason the polar bear is so scary to us in person. It's because it's pure contrast of beautiful and dangerous. But he argues that regardless, if it weren't for its whiteness, it wouldn't be quite as scary to us. He mentions the white albatross, a beautiful large seabird, one of my favorites, and one that I had a run-in personally with last year, a dying one in fact. You may have heard my poem inspired by Herman Melville. It's called... I release my bird. Please go listen to episode 9, I believe it is, and check it out. It's very close to my heart. Well, he discusses the white albatross and tells us a short story of the first time he laid eyes on one, and how majestically beautiful it was. It's really a gorgeous passage, so make sure you don't miss it. He goes on to describe other beautiful white animals and 
gorgeously poetic fashion. How some people can complain about this chapter, I do not know. I see that far too much. It seems so many people feel a pressure to dislike the book for its stigma of being a classic. They sure are missing out, huh? Well, I'm glad you've given the chance and you're here with me. I've heard some truly terrible things said of this story and it really hurts my heart and mind to hear. But we're all entitled to our own opinions and not everyone's going to like the same thing. Anyway, Herman Melville in this time of writing has some what we would now call questionable sayings. He will mention different races blatantly and sometimes brashly. It was a different time, no doubt. So please take all racial things on this show with a grain of salt and bear with me. He asks us what it is that makes the albino man so shocking to the eye. He says it in a way much harsher than that, though. Take the racial aspect out of it, and he has a point. There's nothing wrong with the albino man, but there's something oddly striking about them. It can be difficult to look away, is what he says. We hear about names that humans have given different things over the histories. We hear about the paleness of a dying body, how appalling that can be. He calls it the pallor of the dead. And we wrap our dead in clean white cloths. Why is that? Even our human superstitions prove his point, as we depict ghosts and phantoms to be a milky white. And even death himself has been described as riding a pale horse. Hmm. In the Bible, at the end of the Revelation, those redeemed are said to be wearing white clothes. Whether it's good or bad, nobody can deny the profoundness of the lack of color and its effects on us. Herman asks himself and the reader to desperately try to figure out how this all is, where this comes from. He does say to keep your imagination about you, though, while reading this. He speaks geographically, discussing white mountain ranges versus blue ones, and the different way we think of them. Indeed, large white mountain ranges seem more frightening. Even the names of the seas. When a sailor hears the term the white seas, he's struck with an odd and overbearing feeling of restlessness. Yet when they hear the yellow sea, they think of mild afternoons on soft waves. It's all the same motion. Just the term can change your outlook. He confesses that white is not the first thing you think of when we think of something frightening. And keep your imagination about you. When a sailor passes by the treacherous white snowy mountains, the Andes in Peru, a chill runs through this man with the thought of solitude and desolateness in that high country. He speaks of the western man viewing his snowy fields with not a shadow to taint the vast white blankets. Now, Ishmael and Herman Melville say something very significant. It's one of my favorite parts of the chapter. Shipmate, can you imagine it? Even a bit. Do you have any idea the types of gales you feel at sea with no solid ground to plant your feet upon? Possibly being suspended far above the boat, holding on to splintered ropes. The wind's so strong that it tears the words right from your lips and shuts your eyelids for you. Not to mention the frost it carries and 
leaves on your body and clothes, full soak through, shivering and half shipwrecked. Instead of rainbows speaking hope and solace to this misery, he views what seems a boundless graveyard, grinning upon him with its lean ice monuments and splintered crosses. Yeah, a mass grave for us at this. Methinks this chapter about whiteness is a white flag hung out from a craven soul. So we see romanticism and tragedy here. We see the main character speculating on our world, all of its mysteries, our instincts, fear. There's so much more here. He continues on a bit, though, mentioning the veil of the Christian deity, Jesus Christ. It shines bright white. The color, or lack of color, that we call white, being the intensifying agent here. So Ishmael then questions all colors. When we consider the theory of natural philosophers and science, who tell us that color is not truly there, not present in any substance, it is only a deceit of the mind and eyes. The sweet tinges of skies and woods and sunset, the gilded velvets of butterflies, all these colors do not lay within the object but are painted on from without. And that which provides color, light, which Herman Melville says remains white or colorless itself. It's no wonder this whale is so terribly feared. So we've seen a beautiful depiction and a look at colors and a lack of color. We are let into secrets of humanity in these passages. Thoughts that are present in all of us but fly dormant. This is what this book brings to our forefronts in our minds. And it's beautiful. It can seem redundant to the modern quick thinker, to speak at such lengths about a lack of color. But slow your mind down. Place yourself back to a time when the world moved slower. Humans had much more time to ponder such things and to dig to the deeper layers of themselves. These layers that remain untouched in our modern society. What we lack in vision, Herman Melville makes up for exponentially as we are blinded by modern technologies and such, making us believe we are so much more advanced than our past brothers and sisters. But we fail to see what stands for intelligence. Yeah, we can fly around the world in a matter of hours. But could we take a deeper look at the meanings of life itself in such matters that Melville discusses? Think about it. It's time we move back into some action. And we are back on the Pequod, but below deck this time. The chapter is a bit mysterious and calls back to some early feelings from the book. It's called Hark, which can mean to listen intently or pay attention. Two sailors of unknown character are shown passing the scuttle buckets of fresh water along, working hard below deck. They are both of different races. One is named Kabako. The other one's named Archie. One of them claims to hear some noises from deep within the hold. Let's take a listen. Do you hear that? Oh, that cough from below in the hold. There it is again. Oh, 
Pass the bucket along. Come on. No time for that. I don't hear anything. Come on. The bucket, Archie. Come on. Hmm. I don't know about that. I've got some sharp ears, mate. Ah, oh, cough be damned. You're always hearing things, shit, mate. Something wrong with you. There's nothing down there. Pass the bucket, huh? Yeah. Well, grin away. I know what I heard. Plus, I heard Starbuck and Stubb talking about something rather mysterious the other day. I reckon Ahab knows something of it as well. Keep an eye out there, Kabago. Hi, so what's going on here? What's being hinted at? Who or what is hidden on this ship and why? Who knows about it? It's quite odd, huh? We'll have to wait and find out, but it'll surely be significant. Now, it's time to hear a bit about Ahab inside of his cabin as he messes with the sea charts. I love how Ishmael is able to tell us of what goes on inside of Ahab's mind and inside of his cabin. It's such a delicate balance from narration of coming from Ishmael and Herman Melville. It's amazingly poetic and very telling of the character. Chapter 44 The Chart Ahab is in his cabin after the night of the terrible squall. Out come rolls and rolls of old yellow sea charts. As he spreads them on his table that's screwed down, he intently studies the maps and courses slowly marking with his pencil here and there. In this chapter, we propose the idea of what is called Season on the Line, which is a collection of sperm whales' whereabouts and paths around the world from the prior years, feeding seasons, migrations, and such. We're told how impossible of a task it seems to track down one single whale. And yet, through Ahab's madness and use of these charts, he has vague ideas he knows where the whale has been sighted yearly, where in general he feeds, and yet this information is not entirely credible. It cannot be assumed that the whale will surely be where he was sighted every year or the year prior, but it is reasonably probable. We're told that when these whales migrate, they follow what are called veins, which are wide, contracting, and expanding tubular paths of the depths that the whale uses to help him on his way wherever that may be. These paths are generally unknown in their whereabouts to men. But by general knowledge of the whereabouts, whales can be hunted for. But who's to say the same herd that was present at a certain feeding grounds the year prior will be the same herd that comes this year's season? And so Ahab sits and delves into these maps, and as he marks the paper, some invisible pencil seems to be adding depth to the lines on his forehead. He threaded a maze before him on the four ocean charts as the heavy pewter lamp swings above him. This was a nightly routine for him and must have been maddening. Since the Pequod left Nantucket is Since the Pequod left Nantucket, it had begun a dizzying zigzagging of the globe. You can uh, actually look up maps of the Pequod's path. It's really cool. We're told that Ahab will pour himself over these maps until he becomes short of breath and fear of never finding that whale again. So much so that he comes up on deck for fresh air. And in his trances of torment, he goes back down to his maps and when he sleeps, he sleeps with clenched fists, 
and wakes with his bloody nails in his palms, often awakening in a frenzy, where he would yell and shout, burst from his room, or as though his bed was on fire. And indeed, there was a heat inside of Ahab, a widening mouth of hell. Ishmael reckons that in his soul seeking an escape. Ishmael reckons that this is his soul seeking an escape, only being reasonable while Ahab is asleep and far away from his earthly mind and revenge. We're told that his spirit peers out from vacant eyes, tormented. And he was as a ray of light living with nothing to shine upon and no object to color. The ending of this chapter is incredible. We're shown so much more of Ahab's madness and torment. And the chapter gives us even more depth to Ahab's character and Ishmael's insights and premonitions. Now, we move on to chapter 45, the affidavit. We're told by the narrator that the prior chapter needs some explaining. This is surely Herman Melville intervening here. In this chapter, he provides us with personal accounts of whales and whaling adventures, so as to prove the merit of this story as not just a legendary tale. He wants us to know that there is much truth here, not only in the characters and situations, but all things regarding whales. He wants us to know that he knows what he's talking about here, and he has proof to back up all of his claims. He plainly states that he does not want Moby Dick to just be a monstrous fable, or even worse, an intolerable allegory. This speaks greatly of Melville's vision for the story. It has been said that this book is a metaphor for many different things. This all lies in the eyes of the mind of the reader and their perception. We all have our right to our own perceptions and opinions, and I'm sharing mine here with you all. Herman Melville is always one to explain himself and back himself up, and rightfully so. Though sometimes this has been done to a fault, readers can easily be put off. How often does a book stop to explain itself? Very, very rarely. But this book is not one of the ordinary. No. And so we cannot approach it by ordinary means. This is just one reason why I've created this podcast. There will come a time in this show when we discuss deeply people's perceptions and understandings of this book and what it means. From human sexuality to government and nature, opinions have spanned the gamut. We will deep dive into them when the time is right. For now, we'll hear more about this. I say, let him explain himself. Do we keep our minds open or do we hold ourselves to self-set standards of what we were taught? Education is very important, obviously, but it has become a rigorous and rule-infused world, the world of literature. I have not shared this before, but it is something that I am not always on the same page with, so to speak. I am all for language and the correct use of it, but what constitutes for professional art? Can writing still be good and classic and considered art if it contains errors? I'm not just talking about typos and editing errors. By modern standards, this book, this legendary book, is full of grammatical errors. They're everywhere. As I mentioned, this book was not recognized as great. Not at all. Not until its brilliant author had been well passed. Don't hold too close to rigorous rules of art. 
especially when you're creating your own. You may be hindering something truly beautiful. Do you see where I'm coming from? And so Ishmael or Herman Melville tells us that he's personally experienced three instances where what he said in the prior chapter proves true. This is also something I mentioned twice since the beginning of the show. Now, as a sailor, Melville witnessed a whale being harpooned, that harpoon having a specific insignia on it, one that was personal to the crew he sailed with. Three years later, while fishing in the same area, the same whale was again darted and pulled aboard. It pulled the old irons from deep within its flesh, and there's no mistaking that insignia upon the harpoons, thus proving the possibility of finding the same whale by tracing its feeding patterns. Okay, Herman. Very good. He then lists us examples and names of other sea creatures and whales that have been popular enough to receive a name, which Melville says is a privilege in itself. All these creatures were eventually captured. It's said here that most landsmen have vague ideas of the harsh realities of whaling and sailing, the danger and depth of the whale fishery, and yet they have no vivid understandings of these things and were met with something quite compelling. It shows the age of the book and the time, and it presents to us a helpless feeling of realization. It harkens even more here in modern times. Sure, many disasters in the world or in the fishery are penned, written, or travel by word of mouth, whatever it may be. And that number is great. But the number pales in the light of the truth of the hundreds of untold stories and happenings at sea. You suppose, shipmate, that that poor fellow there, at this moment perhaps caught off the way a line off the coast of New Guinea. He's being carried down, down to the bottom of the sea by the sounding of the Leviathan. Do you suppose that poor fellow's name will appear in the newspaper tomorrow morning? No. The mails are very irregular between here and New Guinea, after all. Yet I will tell you that on one particular voyage, which I made to the Pacific, among many others we spoke thirty different ships. Every one of them had a death by a whale. Some of them more than one, and three that had each lost a boat to crew. And for God's sake, be economical with your lamps and your candles, men. Not a gallon you burn, but at least one drop of man's blood was spilled for it. So this is very powerful. It still rings true today in many ways. The point that's being made here is whales are enormous, truly powerful. They're smart and they can be terribly, terribly dangerous. We're given a few real life examples of dangerous whales destroying and sinking ships. The first example being that of the Essex, a great ship that was sunk by a sperm whale in fact. It's an incident that's largely popular in history and said to be an inspiration for the novel we're reading right now. First-hand reports say that just before the whale ran into the boat, they had accidentally crashed into three other whales that were in the same pack. It is said that the whale acted in a fit of anger and revenge. You'd be the judge on that. We're then told of some examples in history books and other people the author knows, showing us prime examples of the dangers of sperm whales. 
were treated with a few descriptive and frightening passages regarding this. The surmounting point of the author being this, the maliciousness of these creatures, their incredible strength and endurance, even while being hunted. There are examples in history of whales towing entire great vessels with the lines that were thrown into them, as easy as a horse would pull a carriage. Other significant details such as this are penned here. It is said that if a whale is given time to retaliate, it absolutely will, and what makes it seem more deliberate is the time in between. When the whale is first struck, it lashes out in a blind rage. But sometimes these whales will be struck, and down into the deep they swim with the lines in their backs, only to come back up 15 minutes later and swing the great fluke straight out of the boat, splintering it into pieces. This is highly significant to our understanding of these creatures in the time. We're reminded that even the most marvelous passages in this book are a thing of reality, or at least they were. Now, in proper Herman Melville fashion, the chapter ends with one last great push to the meaning, with some typological thinking. Melville speaks of an ancient Christian historian called Procopius. He tells us that he is by far the most trusted and unexaggerating historian of the ancient Christian century. We are told of an old story that said, Near Constantinople, a great sea monster was captured from the Sea of Mamora, after it had destroyed many vessels in the area over a period of 50 years. It is not mentioned in this historical collection what kind of animal or monster this was. Herman Melville is inclined to think that it must have been a whale, and a sperm whale in his opinion. He tells us why. It is because, in his studies and understandings, only sperm whales can and will feed in that Mediterranean area. So concludes this chapter that provides a wealth of knowledge and food for thought. Now before we get back into the present action and get to witness our first lowering and hunt, which is incredibly exciting, we met with one more chapter called Surmises. This chapter is very short, and Surmises, or Surmises, which means to suppose something is true without any evidence. The chapter consists of Ishmael toying with different ideas regarding Ahab and the whale, where he presents different hypotheses. He wonders if Ahab's hatred for the whale has spread to all sperm whales. It seems Ahab could take far too much delight in the hunt of them. Now what about the crew? What about Starbuck? Ahab must use what tools he has available to him to accomplish his dire task. These men are his tools. And of all tools in this world, men are the most apt to getting out of order. Free thinkers, are we? Ahab is worried that they will lose sight of the task, and he understands very well how much Starbuck despises his quest. So much so that if too much time passes before they find that whale, Starbuck could easily start a rebellion against the captain. Well, Ahab had to find a way to keep them on the short leash, keep them focused on his endgame. He decides he'll offer them even more cash. He analytically thinks about his crew and the journey. He has growing anxieties of the crew attempting to overthrow him and wrestle the command of the ship from his grasp. He realizes he will have to act as a normal captain, lay low a bit, keep the crew in line. Still though, he commands the crew to keep a constant lookout and to shout out at any movement you see, anything at all. We're given a hint that this vigilance will prove worthwhile very soon. This chapter has been self-explanatory, and so we're greeted with a new chapter called The Mapmaker, 
For the first time in quite a while, we see Queequeg and Ishmael spending some quality time together. It is a lazy, cloudy afternoon at sea. Shipmates were lazing about the decks and gazing out vacantly at the gray waters. This scene preludes some action. It was a dreamlike afternoon, and together Queequeg and Ishmael are crafting a woven mat of ropes that is called a sword mat. It is used to help with the chafing parts on the ship. Ishmael continues pressing onto the reader the dreamlike state of the scene, with all the sailors silently daydreaming to themselves, nobody talking, and only the sound of the ropes dragging against each other. Ishmael makes a very cool illusion. He felt as if he was crafting some loom of time, spinning the threads of fate. He speaks of weaving his thread of life, weaving his own destiny. And this calls back to the main theme in this book that we've spoken of quite a lot. Destiny, manifestation, that sort of thing. He continues to make some cool visual examples for us. And I wonder where the idea of this scene came from, or if it just happened by chance. But it's beautiful. Ishmael holds the ropes and Queequeg moves the sword over and under to weave the ropes against themselves. With his indifference, the sword sometimes struck crooked, sometimes straight, sometimes soft, sometimes hard. Ishmael likens the sword strikes to chance. If what they are making is the thread of time, and Ishmael's input is his lifetime, then the random sword strikes on the thread must be the chance of life, our free will, so to speak, as it will affect the final product, the final outcome. It's an incredible passage, and in reading this book because I still find things that I never saw before and I take different angles each time I see now that this scene is not without reason Ishmael and Queequeg have intertwined their lives along with everyone on this ship within their imprisonment they still have their free will but when they clinched their oaths and decided to go sailing together they so tied that knot of friendship and sealed the deal of their fate take this passage as you will but in this dreamlike and thoughtful state they are in, they're suddenly broken from it by an incredible sound. It's a very striking moment and important for the metaphor as well, because the dreamlike state is broken, and Ishmael drops his, quote, free will, unquote, or the thread, to the ground. The sound he describes as unearthly came from far above in the cross trees. He gazes up and sees far above him the gay-head, long-haired Indian, Tashigo, he stood with one arm stretched out far and pointing, and in intervals continued his war cry, which Ishmael described as inhumanly loud. Steward, the time, the time! They knew it was a group of sperm whales by the intervals between their spouts. Tash came down and was replaced by another man. All hands come alive and the three small boats that would give chase were raised and swung out over the edge of the Pequod. One boat for each mate and his crew. And with one foot on the gunwale, the men stood and gave shouts of chase, so much like a man of war ready to step into the enemy's boats. But there was a sudden exclamation, and everyone turned to stare at Dark Ahab standing on deck with five shadowy figures of men. As the fog cleared around them, the entire crew sees five mysterious and strange men that had not been present before. 
they run to a vacant boat and begin slacking the lines, lowering it. Who is this mysterious crew that stands with Ahab? They begin to ready the spare boat, the one that is sometimes called the captain's boat. It seems Ahab has brought along some sort of private crew. But these men are not normal. They appear as dark and vicious savages, even to the ferocious sailors here. What is their purpose? We'll find out next episode, along with a very exciting whale hunting scene. I need to thank you all so much for listening to this episode. I think it was really, really great. And uh, we got some really cool insights and uh, an awesome part of the book that I really, really enjoy. I hope you enjoyed as well. Um, so please follow me on Instagram, Apple Podcasts, leave me reviews. CastBox is my main uh, podcast, but you can find me anywhere. Spotify is a great place to listen to me. Uh, please follow me and support me, you know, Patreon, um, merchandise, all that kind of stuff. Uh, keep up to date with everything I'm doing on Instagram and Facebook. And uh, thank you guys so much. If you want to get in contact with me, you know where to find me. So, my name is Dylan C, and I've hosted and produced this podcast. So, go on, drop your swords, take up your pens and reading spectacles. Let us read on. Thank you.